Recently, a article got passed to me titled, America Can't Prevent and Control Type 2 Diabetes. So why aren't we? It was an interesting article. It was an article that presented a few common myths and misconceptions about type 2 diabetes and about the issues that surround type 2 diabetes, in which four distinct conclusions were raised. The four distinct conclusions were, the person is responsible for the issues. There's a structural societal issue. There's poor health education. And there is too much cost when it comes to living a quote-unquote healthy life. But there's a problem with many of the conclusions that were raised. One problem. There was a distinct oversimplification of the ideas. Another problem. There was a presentation of bias in many of the recommendations being presented. But the biggest one is a general ignorance to the underlying issues that surround what is type 2 diabetes and how type 2 diabetes can be prevented. In this, just do a simple internet search. Or better yet, just kind of read through your normal news feeds. And you'll notice that you get bombarded with constant information about what is the best way to prevent distinct types of diabetic conditions or diabetic issues, along with what is the best solution to correcting these diabetic conditions and these diabetic issues. And so one of the things we have to sit here and look at and think about as we go about discussing these issues is what's missing in these arguments. Can we actually prevent type 2 diabetes and is type 2 diabetes the actual issue at hand? Well, Let's talk about that. Warning. The following presentation contains information that might contradict what you have previously heard or believed to be true about how the human body works and contains material that is not suitable for closed-minded individuals. Enjoy. The biggest issue that we have to deal with as we look at the arguments being made by many of the news reports as it relates to type 2 diabetes and many of the other health issues is that the issues at hand are excessively complex. And we tend to attribute a single factor to being the root cause for all of the issues that come into play, in which we will misrepresent the various principles that come into play as it relates to health issues and how lifestyle and lifestyle choices will impact those health issues. We will have a whole host of factors that come into play. Most of what we're going to discuss here is covered in much more detail and in much more depth in a couple of articles that I published almost a decade ago now as it relates to the issues of fatness, fitness, and overfatness, in which overfatness is not the idea of obesity as presented within the media, but is the idea that accumulation of fat mass leads to many of the non-communicable health issues that have become the plague of the current century. As a movie line goes, the cure for the plague of the 20th century, and I've lost it. And the problem is, is that we want to look at a single root cause and a single root cure as being a cure-all. And the problem is that there's not a cure-all here. What we have to remember is that when we're looking at the issues as relates to the 
type 2 diabetes, as is referenced in the news article, is that it comes from a continuum that is the interactions between fitness and fatness factors. Fitness and fatness factors is the relationship between intracellular, intratissue signals that are going to lead to or inhibit levels of inflammation that can lead to disease status, in which we have this continuum going from, in terms of our fitness, from highly inactive through sedentary to overfat to active to highly active and fit. And as we move across this continuum, when we're in the overfat, inactive, sedentary mode, we tend to have an increased risk for disease. That doesn't mean that just because I have excessive fat mass and am inactive, sedentary, I will automatically have a disease state. It simply means that I have an increased risk for having a disease. And most of the diseases that we look at are metabolic diseases in this case. And that's where we get this interaction between intracellular and intertissue signals, hormone signals, that lead to increased stress and increased inflammation, where if I have high amounts of fatness factors, factors that are going to trigger inflammation, and low amounts of fitness factors, factors that are going to reduce inherent levels of inflammation, I am going to have an increased risk for disease. As I start becoming more active, Regardless of what happens to my body image, and this is where we have to get rid of this idea of body image being a label of fitness or a label of fatness. Just because an individual looks a certain way does not mean that they are healthy or not healthy. It's just what they look like. And that body image issue is more about ideals of health than it is about the idea of health. It's about the ideals of attractiveness more than the idea of attractiveness, which goes into a whole other discussion about why we see distinct population markers and distinct populations where we have high amounts of obesity or high amounts of overfatness, as I like to talk about in terms of the physiological aspect of the issue. When we have high fatness and low fitness, we have an increased risk for disease. As I become more active, As I start to change my fitness factors, regardless of what happens to my body image, I start to reduce my relative risk for disease. As I combine that reduction of risk for disease with ever-increasing amounts of fitness and ever-reducing amounts of fatness, and once again, we're not talking about what the body looks like, we're talking about the inflammatory signals. I become more and more fit, and the more fit I am, the more likely I am to be able to respond appropriately to stresses, accurately to stresses, and be relatively flexible in how my body responds to the various stresses that it encounters on a daily basis, and thus able to maintain homeostasis. If we simply just look at what's out there, we have to remember is that a lot of the messages that we see as relates to this idea of fitness and fatness issues comes from a marketability issue and a marketing issue more than it comes about from a health issue. 
When we look at the health issue as relates to this fitness and fatness issue and why it's going to be a slightly longer haul to get a change in approach as relates to can we actually prevent type 2 diabetes and what type 2 type 2 diabetes actually is what we have to do is we have to look at what are the root causes for the issues that lead to type 2 diabetes. If you pull, and I don't like doing this because it's not a very scientific approach and it's very low in terms of evidence and evidentiary support and strength of evidence, if you simply just ask individuals on the street what is type 2 diabetes about, they're going to discuss it in terms of sugar and sugar metabolism. And that's an incorrect way of viewing type 2 diabetes. Type 2 diabetes is a part of a larger health issue that comes about due to an imbalance between nutrient intake and nutrient expenditure, a imbalance in ingestion of specific types of sugars, in particular fructose, and a change in hormonal signals that lead to a increase in production of fats, in particular production of visceral fats, that changes hormone signals, that changes stress signals, that leads to excessive stress within the body, that causes an increase in what we call pro-inflammatory hormones, hormones that are going to cause inflammation. That cause of inflammation, that increase of inflammation, changes metabolism. And that change in metabolism is going to lead to an expression of metabolic inflexibility. That is, the tissues of the body start to change their preference for what fuel source they're going to be using for doing their metabolism. As that preference for fuel sources changes, we get stuck in an imbalance between what fuel should I be using and what fuel am I using. When we have this imbalance in between fuel that I'm using versus fuel that I should be using, we end up having changes in our energetic hormones, hormones that regulate fuel utilization, hormones that regulate overall metabolic rates. This is where people get confused. It's not about thyroid hormone. It's not about insulin, even though those are the ones that we like to talk about. And the reason we like to talk about it is because those are the ones that have been historically discussed. Just because they're historically discussed does not mean that is the most appropriate means to discuss it. As we get more and more inflammation taking place, we start to increase our stress responses. The increase of stress response continually reduces the reliance that the tissues have on utilization of carbohydrates, in particular glucose, which is what we usually talk about. As glucose starts to accumulate within the blood, it starts to cause changes in other signals. It starts to activate additional inflammation, which causes additional stress, which causes additional differentiation to additional visceral body fat, which causes additional signaling to cause even more inflammation. As this occurs, we start having a response within the tissues, particular three types of tissue, to insulin signals. And the three types of tissues that we're going to be reliant upon in terms of insulin signaling as relates to the diabetic issues are skeletal muscle, 
adipose tissue, fat tissue, and the liver. And that's because those three tissues are reliant highly on insulin signaling for one membrane transporter, one protein of the cells of the body to get glucose from the bloodstream into the tissues themselves. We talk about insulin as being this ubiquitous hormone and the only hormone that's gonna be responsible for getting glucose from the blood into the cells. But that's only the case in those three tissues and only when we have exorbitantly high amounts of glucose in circulation. Insulin does get released when we have high amounts of glucose, but it's not done in such a way so that it's the only thing that's gonna be responsible for those high amounts of glucose or it's the only thing that's going to be released in response to high amounts of glucose. One of the things that's going to be involved with this whole metabolic issue, and once again, we have to look at this in terms of a metabolic issue, is that we're going to have a whole host of changes in metabolic hormones. And the whole host of changes in metabolic hormones is going to lead to issues where we start seeing a reduction in my responsiveness to Hormones that are responsible for growing and maintaining tissues. Growth hormone, androgens, thyroid hormones. We're going to start seeing a change in my responsiveness to regulatory hormones, particularly reproductive regulatory hormones. FSH, LH, follicle-stimulating hormone, luteinizing hormone, which is going to impact further levels of estrogen, and levels of androgens. So we'll see changes in the way in which the body's going to respond to the hormones that should be causing the body to grow in response to having a positive fuel source, having more nutrients available to it than what it is expending in normal metabolic processes. But because I have this metabolic inflexibility, this inability to change between fuel sources. I'm going to be stuck in such a way that I'm not going to be using the nutrients in the correct manner to allow for proper growth, which compounds this hormone issue coming about that leads to what has been, what I've discussed in the paper that's now over a decade, decade old, anabolic dysregulation, D-Y-S-R-E-G-U-L-A-T-I-O-N. This anabolic dysregulation means that the body is not responding in the correct manner to the correct hormones. This gets compounded when we start looking at the underlying issues that come about leading to the overfatness issue, which is at foundational basis, the root cause for the metabolic diseases. The metabolic diseases include type 2 diabetes, but it also can include cancers. It can also include cardiovascular disease. So even though we talk about type 2 diabetes and all of the information that we get about type 2 diabetes being this diet issue. It's not a diet issue. It's a stress issue. It's an issue of inflammation that leads to a situation where we have anabolic dysregulation. Most of this gets foundationally developed due to lifestyle, which is where we get that conclusion about it's a personal responsibility. But the problem is it's not necessarily strictly a personal responsibility. 
And it goes back into the fact that we have all of these various factors that come into play that lead to the development of the diseases. We have about five distinct things that are going to come into play as it relates to the physiology of the issue. And that is the appropriate amount of physical activity or exercise stimulation, the nutritional foundation for the individual, the gender and the age of the individual, the level of adiposity, the level of body fatness for the person. And once again, this is not what the person looks like. This is their body fat percentage, in particular, visceral body fat percentage relative to their fat-free mass, the mass of bone, muscle, and organs of the body, and the psychological adherence that the person has to choosing the appropriate exercise stimulus and nutritional basis for their gender, for their age, and for their psychological well-being. And this is where we get into one of the other conclusions that was raised that is not quite correct, which is there is this societal structural issue. The problem is, is that because of the way in which everything is set up within the way in which lifestyle choices and lifestyle diseases develop, is that you cannot differentiate the personal choice from the societal pressures and societal stresses. What happens in terms of how the society indicates the person should behave impacts the psychology of the individual and the wantiness for that individual to do what is best for them to do in terms of nutritional status and level of physical activity. And it's not just about type 2 diabetes, even though that's what the article was discussing, but it's also about all of the other metabolic diseases. Type 2 diabetes is one of the multitude of metabolic diseases that fit within the non-communicable disease, the diseases that impact overall health that cannot be transmitted from individual to individual. That psychological issue here feeds into the issue of bias and the issue of cultural impact on choices in which there is a distinct difference that can be seen within the quote-unquote Western society and the quote-unquote non-Western society in terms of gender roles, meals and eating, appropriateness for physical activity, and appropriateness for foods. Without taking those into account, we end up having a biased perspective within most of the medical professionals and healthcare professionals that indicates that everybody should be doing specific things and only these specific things as a means to improve overall fitness within that continuum of fitness versus fatness factors as relates to the ability to have an improvement in health and a reduction in overall risk for disease development. But the problem is, is that if we approach this in a biased perspective, we ignore the individual's self-motivational factors that we need to get to in order to reduce that individual's relative risk or an increase in fatness factors and a reduction in fitness factors 
that will increase the relative risk for disease. This comes into play when we start looking at play and physical education within the school system and peer pressures around individuals that at childhood have an increased relative fatness to fitness ratio. These tend to be the children that while will play, do not have this self-motivational desire to run around in the same manner that their school-age peers would. Yet, if you give them other opportunities by which to increase their physical activity beyond just free play, to organize sports, to resistant exercise, you would see an increase in self-motivation towards those activities which would increase their fitness factors and reduce their fatness factors. We see the same type of self-motivation, self-selection issues when it comes to type of nutrition, where we may recommend specific nutritional aspects for children based off of our preference for food without understanding the distinct differences in metabolism of a child versus the metabolism of an adult. We also make these same choices without understanding the attractiveness of specific types of foods based on the bliss point for enjoyment and the fact that that bliss point will change as we age and as we get exposed to different types of food. But we tend not to have those conversations because we tend to think about the type 2 diabetes based not on the culmination of a host of factors, but based off of a single factor. And that single factor that we tend to look at when it comes to nutritional aspect is sugar in the diet, even though it not, is not necessarily about sugar in the diet, or a lack of activity because of a decreased willingness to do free play or to do run around play by individuals within the population or due to cultural norms, a reduced willingness for distinct individuals within the population to participate within either free play and or sport, which can lead to a psychological aversion or a traumatic event occurring that will reduce the desire for the individual to be active throughout life. So, can we prevent type 2 diabetes? Well, once again, yes, we can prevent type 2 diabetes. And we can prevent type 2 diabetes by preventing metabolic diseases. But in order to prevent type 2 diabetes by preventing metabolic diseases, we have to develop a means by which we can negate many of the snake oils that are out there, many of the get-fit-fast ruses that are out there, discuss diet and discuss physical activity in such a way that we actually do not oversimplify or present an approach that is coming from our own skewed perspective as to what is best for the individual. Within this skewed perspective, one of the things that we must be very careful of is not providing 
the psychological harm to the individuals who are at risk for developing metabolic diseases, where instead of developing a metabolic disease, they instead develop an eating disorder, a body dysmorphic issue that comes about due to how we approach the balance between diet and exercise. And the way in which we talk about diet and exercise will directly impact whether or not the person will be willing to select a more appropriate diet and exercise regimen and diet or diet and exercise program in such a way that it becomes a sustainable lifelong event versus presenting a skewed perspective that leads to self-harm through the development of a body dysmorphic psychological setup, a psychological setup that attributes foods and food types and food selections as being inherently bad or the amount of food or the amount of a food type as being inherently bad along with the social implication of what my body looks like relative to what my body should look like if I was to be healthy, fit, and not susceptible to expressing diabetic issues. Well, thanks for listening. We're going to pick up this discussion a little bit later on as we talk about the various types of diet and exercise that has been reported as being of benefit, as well as the issues that surround the individuals attempting to combat the overfatness through diet and exercise. Please make sure to like and subscribe if you enjoy what we're putting out. Please feel free to share, and we would very much appreciate if you would share what we're putting out with all of your friends and family. 